Now, I had to note the irony in that, did you all as well, that while we're singing about grace, we dropped one of the communion trays with the bread, and we, I mean, we dropped the ball. That's why we needed grace, you know? And I was listening to the trio, and I realized they just need a bass. Joe and I saw you sitting up here, and I thought, oh, wow, he's got a lot of skills. I don't know if that's one of them. And, uh, you know, I mean, Ray's good for a lot of things, but so only so far you can ask a guy to push, you know? And... Uh, so uh, we also this morning, just to, to let you know, we had a baptism in the first hour. And uh, a couple years ago, we were going to have a baptism, and we do. Anybody wants to be baptized, there's a, a pool right behind the screen. We can take a screen out of the way and have people baptized, which is a picture of die to myself to be raised to walk a new life with Christ. Well, a couple years ago, somebody was supposed to be baptized, so I thought when I first got here on Sunday morning, I would check on it, and there was no water in the tub. So... I called the custodians, and they got after it quick as they could. They opened up the faucet as fast as they could, uh, bringing in the water. Of course, it ran uh, cool pretty quickly, but then to get the tub full enough uh, so that we could, you know, dunk people all the way under, because we think that's how Jesus did it in the Bible, where he was completely immersed, and so that's kind of important to have enough water to be able to do that. They put two hoses in, so it's about this time of year they're running hose. If you've ever taken a shower out under the hose, you know, in... Uh, in, uh, in winter, then you'll know exactly what I was talking about. So ever since then, we check on it. So this morning, we're going to have a young man baptized in the first hour, and JC came and checked on the water, and this morning, it was 112 degrees. Now, you know from a hot tub, the hottest you ever want to get in is about 105. So I thought, wow, this would be quite a sacrifice for the young man to <laughs> get in the water and have his first suffering for Christ be that he's boiled like a lobster in the baptismal pool. At church. So anyway, they are literally, we're putting ice into the water and uh, running the hose just to cool things down. I think they got it down to 95 degrees for him. So that was kind of, uh, kind of fun, you know, if you say, okay, where's the, where's the Lord working? I also went up to, to see my dad. Most of you know my mom died three weeks ago, and uh, they loved the Lord, and she was always the organist. He was the preacher, and they uh, were married for 606, or 769 and three-fourths months, because he always counted in months. So that's 64 years and six days short of two months, okay? So you don't have to do the math. And so we went up to see him this past weekend, and he mentioned that he hadn't gotten a card from a particular person that he would have expected to get something from. And so I called the person, left a message on their phone of my dad would love to hear from you. And he called back and he said, well, we sent a card and some flowers, and I called him on the phone. And so I realized, you know, my dad might have forgotten a couple of things here or there. And so Cindy and I started to collect all the cards that were at the house and just kind of organize them into, you know, their friends from missionary days, their friends from church days, and their friends from South Shores. And I, I, you got, I got, it took us three hours just to write down the cards and get the addresses. You overdid yourself. That's what I'm trying to tell you is uh, there were just page after page of, of people from South Shores who sent cards. And so I'm saying to him, well, Dad, remember this person is this. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this one, and I said, and here's one you've never met. They've just come over recently to our church from another church, and they sent a card because they know you lost your love. And, uh, and they have had losses as well, and they're caring about you. And so he sent this little note. And he said, our humble thanks for your love to me and our dear family. Your prayer and love lift our hearts to the Lord each day. We praise and thank him for you. Keep exalting Jesus and loving him. Praises. Murrah and Coral. And then he realized. He says, oh yeah, from heaven. <laughs> so 
I, I explained to him, as has just been impressed with me over and over, how gracious and kind and generous South Shores is, over and over and over. And once again, you've proved that, and so your mother and I are so proud of you, and uh, you have been a real blessing, and, and I say thank you uh, for the kindnesses that you've extended to him. And now all the cards are in order, and he's got a list so that he can read, it, read over it again and to see all the names. We're in John chapter 18. And uh, while you turn there, let me give you just a little update. We've been working with the building committee. This week we've been doing exciting things like talking to contract lawyers um, to be sure that everything's all set. If you're a lawyer, I'm not picking on you, honest. I'm sure there's an important job for you to do. Um, But um, we're wanting to be sure everything is done exactly right. And uh, we still anticipate by the end of July we will move off of this campus. Uh, We'll have all of our services down in San Juan in August. So we'll have some meetings to explain that. But here's kind of one of the things we're looking at as well. How do we, because I've never been part of this before, how do we appropriately honor our history and what the Lord has done in each of the buildings on campus? How do you say goodbye appropriately and then hello to the new opportunity? And so if you have some ideas on that of ways that we can remember, we can praise the Lord, we can exalt what He's done here because He's been the Lord all the way through leading us as a church since this church started in the 50s. And and God is good and He's blessed us. And we want to say thank you even as we're saying how do we take steps forward. So we want to do that between now and the end of July then get out of the way and let them do the demolition they need to do, do the infrastructure, the underground stuff they need to do, put in two of the buildings, lengthen the parking lot uh, just on the ground level, and then get us back here quick as they can. So that's kind of what we're looking at in a short uh, synopsis, but you can be praying, and if you have some ideas of how to say thank you, Lord, and goodbye to this place for a little while, um, I need some help. Okay, John 18. We're in this series now called Rise. The cross, the grave, and the throne. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men, women, boys, and girls to myself. And he's doing that. And he takes the disciples and he goes to the city of Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, which is the biggest celebration of the year. It's basically to remember God taking them from slavery to freedom. It's the epic story of the Old Testament. It's the epic story of the New Testament. God taking us from slavery to sin to freedom in Christ. And they're coming together to remember what God has done for them, which is what we've done here at the communion table, to remember what Jesus has done for us. And the disciples don't know the whole plan. They just had to trust and follow Jesus, just like us. And he's given them hints, though, that his life may be short for this world, and he's going to give his life as the sacrifice for sin to make a way for man to have fellowship with God once again. And that's the whole picture of Passover, innocent blood being shed to save the life of another. It's the whole picture of communion and of Christ on the cross, innocent life being shed to save the life of another. Well, they're at uh, dinner and uh, things, uh, the wheels seem to come off. They don't seem to be going well. And Jesus says something to Judas and he mysteriously leaves for some reason. And then Jesus tells the group that Peter is going to deny him uh, three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And then he commands them, love one another, even with your irregular edges, love one another. And then he says, abide in me, stay connected to the vine and stay fruitful. And he says, and the world's going to hate you just like it hated me. And uh, then they get up and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and really for Jesus to wait because he knows what's going to happen. And a band of 600 men show up led by Judas of all people. 
And so Peter grabs his sword and he hacks off the, uh, uh, takes a stab at the first guy's ears. He hacks off the guy's ear. And so everything stops. Of course, the guy's bleeding profusely from the side of his head. And Jesus stops, picks his ear up and puts it back on his head and does a miracle. And they still arrest Jesus and take him to the high priest for six illegal hearings and trials in the middle of the night. In the process, Peter denied Jesus three times before he heard the rooster crow. And then he looks, and Jesus, the Bible says Jesus looked right at Peter. But it gets worse. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 28 of John 18. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. He's the most powerful leader in the Jewish world, was the high priest. And they take him from there to the highest-ranking Roman officer, the governor. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled, but they could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So here it is, the middle of the night, and there's this huge riot going on outside his house. Maybe he had to wake up and come out and stick his head. What's going on out there? Now, the job of the governor of a nation state, from Rome's point of view, was he had two jobs, collect taxes and keep law in order. Collect taxes, keep law and order. And if you look back a little bit, King Herod had been king from 37 to 4 B.C., about 33 years he was king, and he ruled with an iron fist, and he kept uh, law and order, and he collected the taxes. And he, was, uh, he had uh, eight or ten wives, and he had at least six sons, and of his three oldest sons, two of them were trained in Rome to become his successor, to be the next king. But at some point, he distrusted them. He was suspect, suspected their motives and of what was going on, and he killed one son and then another. And then five days before he died, he had his oldest-born son put to death as well. So there was a leadership vacuum when Herod died. His next three oldest sons, who were not prepared, raced to Rome along with his sister, the four of them, trying to say, who's going to be the next person in charge? And uh, Caesar Augustus listened to their claims, and he saw this as an opportunity for Rome. And uh, so he divided the kingdom into four pieces, and he gave each of them a portion. They were not equal portions, so Augustus made the oldest son that presented himself, Archelaus, the ethnarch or half-king of Samaria and Judea. Judea. But Archelaus, and then he made Herod Philip a tetrarch or quarter king up in Galilee. But Archelaus was cruel. He was ruthless. And uh, remember when Joseph and Mary and Jesus got the message from an angel when they were in Egypt that King Herod had died and they could return home to Israel? But then it says, but they heard that Archelaus was reigning in Jerusalem, and so they didn't want to go back to that area of Bethlehem. They went instead up to the north, up to Nazareth. That's because Archelaus was not fit to be a leader, and lots of innocent blood was shed. He couldn't keep law and order, and he had uh, killed many Jews and Samaritans. And in fact, the only thing that ever united the Samaritans and the Jewish people together was their disdain for Archelaus. And in 6 AD, they took a bold step, and they joined together and sent a delegation to Caesar in Rome and complained. And Caesar deposed Archelaus in 6 AD, and he put a governor or a procurator in his place. So they got rid of Archelaus, but it cost them something. Because now instead of being allies of Rome, they were made subjects of Rome. Well, the situation in Israel remained volatile. There was intense religious fervor among the Jews, and there wasn't any understanding or appreciation of that by their, uh, their pagan overlords. 
and their laxity towards uh, God or religion. And there was constant internal struggle of the progressive Sadducees with the popular Pharisees and uh, dominated by the powerful high priest. And you had people looking for a political Messiah. You had zealots who were willing to kill people to get them out of the way uh, to make things happen. There was constant political turmoil between competing groups with vastly different views of what the future should look like. And there was always a shortage of funds. Does that sound like today? Yeah, not a lot has changed, I guess. And the Romans found keeping law and order in Israel nearly impossible. They changed governors the way some people change T-shirts on a hot summer day. And Pilate was the fifth governor in that row. And so he became the governor of Judea in 20 A.D. Well, the leader needed to be a velvet hand, manipulator with outstanding sympathy and tact, foresight and resolution. And Pilate had none of those qualities. So according to the best historical accounts written, he got himself sideways with the Jewish people almost before he arrived. He came down from Caesarea, uh, which is up near um, uh, Sea of Galilee, and he marched his legions into town, flying their Roman eagle standards and bearing the image of the divine emperor on them. And he put them up at the Antonio Fortress, which, remember, was built right next to the temple. And uh, this caused people to, to uh, want to riot. And uh, for five days, Pilate ignored this growing riot of people who were uh, clamoring that these flags should not be flying because they, uh, they had uh, this image of the emperor that the Romans claimed was a God at the Antonio Fortress. Well, finally, Pilate got all of his uh, legions out and rounded up all the rioters and uh, told them all, if you don't cease and desist, I'll kill you. And they all lay down on the ground and they pulled their robes back and they stretched their necks out and they said, kill us then. Because we'd rather die than have God's word disregarded. And when he saw how many there were, he knew that if he killed all of them, that Caesar Augustus would hear about it and that Caesar would say, you didn't keep law and order and would remove him. And so Pilate backed down and during the night, the standards were removed and ended up taken back to Caesarea. Another time... He built an aqueduct because they needed water in Jerusalem. And, you know, you have to pay people to build things. It gets expensive. And so he went to the temple and he took the money to pay for the water project for Jerusalem out of the treasury in the temple. Of course, the Jews considered the money stolen. He also then, in a third instance, he dedicated some gilded shields to, uh, to the emperor and put them in Herod's palace there in Jerusalem. But the Jews objected because the shields gave honor to a person instead of to God. And the conflict just continued to boil and got out of hand. And word of it reached Caesar himself. And Tiberius himself had to send a message to, to, uh, Herod to, or to Pilate to say, take down the shields and avoid a riot which was not the kind of attention that you want to get, you know, as a governor from Caesar. It says you're not doing your job, and you could lose that job, and maybe even your head. And so the, the background before Pilate ever saw Jesus face-to-face -face was he was already in a weakened position with the Jewish leadership because they knew if they complained and cried loud enough that he would be removed. So he's in a weakened position. So Passover arrives, and the first thing in the morning, it's still the middle of the night, really. The feast is just about to begin and get started, and here come the religious leaders with a rioting mob coming, screaming behind them, and poor Pilate was waking up in the night thinking, well, here we go again. So Pilate's initial questions were the normal inquiry of a trial. 
What charges are you bringing against him? He's not going to just accept uh, what they say at face value, and he's not going to automatically pronounce a sentence without knowing the alleged crime. And the answer is elusive, because the high priest knew that Jesus was not guilty of any crimes under Roman law, and there's no evidence to support a charge. So they answered him, verse 30, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, well, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See, the main charges against Jesus for the Jews was that he claimed to be God or a son of God. And when, suddenly when they got in front of Pilate, that didn't matter to the Romans. They had lots of gods. So the main charge against Jesus were political and not religious. He's accused of being a political threat to Rome and to the authority of Caesar. They accuse Jesus that he subverts the nation. He opposes the payment of taxes. He claims to be a king. And Pilate can look out from his balcony and see the prisoner, and he didn't really fit the picture. He doesn't look like an angry revolutionary. He doesn't look like an aspiring king. And he's puzzled by the responses of the Jewish leaders that didn't have any clear charge to state. And so he goes back in, in the building and he summons Jesus inside, which the Jewish leaders, wanting to keep themselves religiously and ritualistically pure, didn't go in. So he starts out questioning Jesus, but you end up wondering who really is on trial. Pilate entered his headquarters, verse 33, and called Jesus and says to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to him. So you are a king. Or Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pilate's questions are more of a confession than a cross-examination. He says, look at his questions. Are you king of the Jews? And he's irritated that Jesus didn't just kowtow to him, that he, he actually uh, answered him as if you would be answering an equal. He knows who Jesus is. In fact, later, Pilate tries to wash his hands of the whole affair, but it doesn't work. Then he says, do you think I'm a Jew? History tells us that the Roman governors usually despise the Jews. He's confessing his prejudice against them. It's a nasty business being the governor of Jerusalem. I mean, it's not a plum assignment. And nobody put Jerusalem governor on their dream sheet for the next job that they wanted. And Pilate asked them then, what is it you've done? He didn't know what to do with Jesus. He really is quite a weak man himself, and he's gotten a message from his wife. John doesn't tell us this, but one of the other Gospels, that his wife sent a message saying, I had a, a nightmare over him in the night. Have nothing to do with that man. But he doesn't know what to do. He knows Jesus is innocent, and he's afraid that the Jews will clamor to Caesar for his job if he doesn't cave into their demands. So he says, what is truth? And Pilate doesn't have a clue. Seems like Jesus really is trying to witness to him, trying to say, hey, start a relationship with God. And he confesses his cynicism. I mean, if Pilate really wanted to know the truth, he would have asked Jesus more questions, and he would have given Jesus his earnest attention. He has a cynical man with a cynical heart. He's standing face to face with the way, the truth, and the life, but he doesn't get it. 
If he had listened, he would have discovered that Jesus was a different kind of king. Kingdom not of this world is a king who came to tell the truth and a king who's been rejected by his own people. And Pilate needed a king in his life. He needed somebody to provide that stability and that direction and that leadership. And he thought his choice was either to side with the Jews and make Jesus suffer or even die or side with a man he knew was innocent. But really he was choosing, do I listen to God's voice or to the clamoring voices around me screaming that I condemn this man? He's faced with a choice. Choose Jesus as king or stay in his cynicism. Jesus really is the king of kings and lord of lords, and it was really Pilate who was on trial. It was his moment to decide, what do I do with Jesus? I can't stay neutral. Jesus is on trial in your life and mine too. I mean, how would you describe your relationship to Jesus if you had to pick? Are you questioning like Pilate? You're not committing. You're just collecting the data. You're keeping him at arm's length. Or are you trusting to say, God, I don't understand all what's happening. I don't understand all the bumps in the road or some of my losses, but you have a plan bigger than me for me to live out, and I trust you. You are the boss in my life. See, is Jesus your counselor or your king? You know, you go to a counselor, you ask their advice, you listen to their advice, and then you leave and you decide, am I going to follow their advice or not? But if you are standing in front of a king or your boss, and he says, here's what you need to do, you don't have to question that. You just say, how do I accomplish it? Is Jesus the one you are questioning, or is Jesus the one you are following? Pilate, he's stuck with a problem that he didn't create, and he didn't want, and he tries to find a way out. So verse 38, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews, and he told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Another way that's translated is was a revolutionary. He was a terrorist. Now, think about this. The Antonia Fortress sits right up above the Kidron Valley, and you can see the Mount of Olives. So the top of the Mount of Olives is where the parade had started just a few days before this, where Jesus got on a donkey, and people put palm branches in front of him. They put their robes down, and they yelled, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They could watch all that from the San Antonio Fortress. They had seen this commotion and this huge crowd. They could had heard the yell, and they must have been wondering, do we need to send our legions out for crowd control, or can we just let this kind of uh, uh, burn itself out? And they'd opted to take no action. So this was actually a pretty shrewd move by Pilate, if you think about it, because if you were a betting person, would you wager in favor of the guy who arrived in town with thousands of people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, or would you put your money on a revolutionary who's been rotting away in your prison named Barabbas? Now, come on. One guy came to town riding a wave of popularity. You would think he, he would still have some money in the bank with the crowd. And who's Barabbas anyway? Well, the word Barabbas comes from the Aramaic. If you take it apart, Bar means son of, Abba means father, S means holy revered. Son of the holy revered father. It's not really a name. It's more of a title or a description. And there is a text of the ancient text of the book of Matthew where in the same scene, Pilate is asking them, 
Who do, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Christ? His first name is Jesus, which means Savior. And Pilate thinks it's pretty funny. He's got two saviors. Which kind of savior do you want? Jesus, who's called the Messiah, or Jesus Barabbas, son of the Holy Father? Now, I heard a sermon by Pastor Chuck Swindoll on this, and he wondered, what could Barabbas hear? Barabbas is sitting in prison about as far away as the houses across the golf course there, about 1,000 yards away. And so, if you're the crowd and I'm Pilate, it went like this. Pilate said, who do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus called the Christ? And the crowd yelled, Barabbas. Come on, you can do a better job. And the crowd yelled, Barabbas. Okay, so Barabbas can hear the crowd. Then Pilate said, what should I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? And the crowd yelled, Oh, they would have been louder than that. But you see, Barabbas is a thousand yards away. Here's two things. He hears his own name and he hears, crucify him. He didn't know they were talking about Jesus. See, Barabbas, at best, is a freedom fighter. He's a revolutionary. He's a terrorist. He's a person who's been willing to shed innocent blood to get him out of the way so that his agenda can be accomplished. Who's Jesus the Messiah? He's God. He's man. He's humble. He's gentle. He's good. He's in front of Pilate on purpose to be condemned of crimes he didn't commit so that he could suffer for the sin of the world. All the sin of the world would be placed on him as the sacrificial lamb of God. So where is true salvation to be found? Only in Jesus called the Messiah. Well, Pilate's plan backfires, so he takes it up a step. Chapter 19, verse 1 says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. They took Jesus and had him whipped. Flogging was done with a cat of nine tails with pieces of lead and bone tied to them, and often the prisoner didn't survive the flogging even to make it to the cross to die. So Jesus took 39 lashes, which uh, would have been a whip with bone or a stone or glass on the end so it would flay a person's body open as they were whipped. And it's really like a second punishment for the same crime. Why? It wasn't for hatred for Pilate. I mean, why did Jesus have to endure this? Because of one word, politics. Politics. I mean, Pilate's hopeful that the Jews would look at Jesus having been flogged and say, it's enough. He's one of us. You're beating up one of our brothers. Stop. That's inhumane. It was Pilate's political solution to the greatest problem in human history. The soldiers even got into it. It says, verse 2, the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on his head, and they arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him in with their hands. Some of the other gospels tell us that he was blindfolded, and they would slug him and say, Who hit you? They're playing a sick game, and Jesus is their pawn. And he could have escaped all this, but he stayed there because of his love for you and for me. In fact, in John 19.3, the verb indicates that they repeated it over and over. They were mocking him and beating him with their hands again and again. They abused him just for sport. Well, after the flogging and the taunting, Pilate presented Jesus to the crowd. I think he's trying to shock them into their good senses to say, enough already, enough is enough. And Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I'm bringing him out that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. 
Now we read, behold the man, because Jesus was the man. He is the one. He's the one God used. He's the hero. He's our champion. But I think Pilate said it differently. I think he said, behold the man. Like, why be scared of him? Why be angry with him? Look at, he's beaten. He's unattractive. He's bleeding. He's helpless. But their response, verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. A comparison of the Gospels shows that Pilate pronounced Jesus guiltless seven times. There's no guilt in him. I find no fault in him. Why didn't Pilate release Jesus? It's more than just politics. He knew in his heart it was wrong. He didn't release Jesus because of what it would cost him personally. He had sticker shock. Oh, my goodness. It's the truth. It's the right thing to do. But what will it cost me? Will it cost me my job? Will it cost me my comforts? Will it cost me my life? Sometimes we're willing to go along with something when it's the right thing to do if it doesn't cost us too much. But how far are you willing to go for love, for truth, for what's right? Sometimes we say, well, as long as it doesn't cost all that much, what is it going to cost you to live for Jesus in your job? What's it going to cost you to live for Jesus at school? Will you be harassed? Will you be ridiculed? Jesus told us in advance, they hated me, they will hate you too. And verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and he said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you won't speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you'd have no authority at all over me unless it's been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. If you get the picture here that Jesus is beaten, he's bleeding, he's mocked by the robe and the crown of thorns, and Pilate says, I have the power, talk to me. And Jesus says, only God gives the power, and he can give it in an instant, and he can take it away too. God is the powerful one. You know, sometimes we think when things are going our way and things are working well and it's right that God is all powerful and it's good. But when things go wrong, when things happen that we didn't want to have happen, when there are setbacks, when we pray and nothing seems to happen, and we wonder, God, are you all powerful? Do you care? Do you know? Do you hear me? God still has the power. Just trust him. Give him your situation and just trust him. And we need to understand. I mean, you could fill in any name. Blank has no power except what's given for him or her from above. It says, verse 12, from that moment on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Now, that's not even a veiled threat, is it? They're saying, if you release this man, we're going to run tell Caesar ourselves on you and you will lose your job. And Pilate knew that Jesus was right, that power only comes from God, and that you will give an account to God of your life someday. So Jesus' penetrating analysis of the situation made Pilate more eager than ever to release him, but the popular pressure was too strong. It was against him, and so they, they threatened him, we're going to tell Caesar on you. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, and he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha which you can still see in Israel to this day, that place where the judgment was made. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. 
So it's just starting to get light. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. You know, an amazing thing happened when Jesus was judged. Pilate tried to appear fair and just, but you look at him today through the light of what happened on the cross, and he looks like a co political coward. The Jewish leaders tried to appear holy and righteous, but you look at them today and they were conniving and power hungry. When you look at anybody through the lens of the cross, the closer you get to the cross, the more clearly we see who people really are. You could make it personal. The closer you look at yourself through the light of the cross, we don't look so good. We need help. We're less attractive. We need Jesus. Wouldn't you rather take care of that in private, to come to Jesus? Jesus said, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. There's nothing hidden that will not be made known. How do you look in the light of the cross? Get right with God today. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who are being saved is the power of God. Shall we pray? Let's stand together. Dear Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that we can celebrate it in reading your word, in baptism, in communion. Thank you for the grace that you bestow to us. Thank you that we can sing about it, we can pray about it, we can read about it, but touch our hearts, I pray, even at a deeper level. May we be truly in love with you. May we follow you in all things. We thank you that you are our Savior and our God, that you were there to endure that suffering for us so that when you look at us, we are pure and righteous in your sight. Now fill us with your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.